Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Village Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me here at The Ville today. The Ville has been a really awesome partner of Second Mile over the years. Um, And so it already got a shout out, but since I have a microphone with a little, like, this nice little bendy thing on it, can get another for, uh, we have a come and see coming up on August 24th, and you can come out and learn more about Second Mile, specifically about tutoring at our after school program. So I told, um, I told Danny, who is a member here, and she runs our after school program, that the title of my sermon would be, why Jesus wants you to volunteer at 252. Um, And unfortunately, that's not the message, but I think it is still true. So, you know, it's a question of obedience at this point. Um, So, yeah, let's just just dive in here. So I'm happy to be here. And um, a few months ago, I encountered an article online, um, which is there any other way, really, we read articles, but uh, I encountered an article online that, that had some content in it that was a little bit concerning, Um, and in particular, I think it's relevant for a church like The Ville in a place like Jacksonville. Um, So it was the story of two churches that had merged together, one predominantly white congregation and one predominantly black congregation, and um, within the article, there were some some quotes and some worldviews expressed that that were kind of alarming. So so some of the congregants there, they, they stated that we're all the same in God's eyes, and there's no differences between us, and we, we just should minimize those things and not think about them. And other people said, well, there are differences, but it's best if we, we just don't talk about it, because if we talk about it, then people feel uncomfortable. And when people feel uncomfortable, like, you know, church isn't supposed to be like that, so we're just not going to talk about it. And so these two things were repeatedly expressed throughout the article over and over again, including, like, some really extreme examples of people who said, like, well, I stopped going to that church after the new people showed up, but... And I was like, well... We should examine these things, right? Um, and, and so I would say that this, is, this worldview, it's, it's actually dangerous. And, and I could give you sociological or psychological or um, even ethical arguments for why that is. But I thought it'd be better if we, we jump into a passage of scripture that helps examine where, um, how God wants us to approach and look at these things. Um, so we're going to be looking from Genesis chapter 11 today. And it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And so this is where I need to give a disclaimer, is this is the, it's the familiar scripture alert, okay? So anytime we're opening up the Bible and it's, and it's a story we've, we've heard a lot, or we've even heard like since we were children, we need to just do a little like quick, uh, wow, this is a very dated reference, like Men in Black with Will Smith, and we need to wipe our memories of like, what, what have we heard about this thing? Because we, uh, we, need, we need to see it with fresh eyes, lest we just take the message and just, just you know, chew it up in our old usual way. So let's, um, familiar story alert, okay, look at it with fresh eyes. Um, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to give it a read. So, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Yahweh said, 
If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So Yahweh scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole world. From there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see um, in, in three movements. So we're going to see a, a great affront, a great mercy, and a great gift. So first, a great affront. Uh, so we need to place ourselves where we are in, in hum the human story at this point. And this is right, we're at the very beginning, right? We can't get much more beginning than Genesis chapter 11. Uh, so, so far, the story of the world has been following this, this repeated theme, and it will continue to do so. As God makes something that is good, humans step in and they ruin it, and then God needs to step in and fix it and redeem it and restore it, right? So we've seen this happen as, as God created the garden with Adam and Eve in it, right? And all things were good. They were in this, this state of shalom or wholeness. But then, of course, right? Um, the fall takes place, and humanity, we choose to eat the fruit, and we choose to go our own way, and things enter into this downward spiral. So we have, we have Adam and Eve followed by the very next generation. Their kids is the first murder, right? We've, we've only made it one generation, and we're already killing each other, right? So then we go, like a lesser-known story, we go three generations past that, and we get this guy named Lamech, who we don't know much about, but we do know this. We know he had multiple wives, so women are being treated as property, and that he sings a song to one of his wives praising about how he killed a young man, right? So we're, we're five generations into the human experiment and we're already treating women as property and singing songs about how happy we are that we killed people, right? Like, things are not going well. And this, this downward spiral continues on uh, that eventually leads to the flood where humanity is wiped out and restarted again. But even that story, if you read that, has like a, a dark lining to it. Uh, with if you, about Noah and his character and everything that goes on uh, with the rest of his life. So, so we're just in this, this downward spiral. So let's take a look at these first four verses again um, and examine what, what's here. So I know we just read it, but reading comprehension is great for all of us, no matter what age we might be. So let's uh, look at verses one through four again. Okay, so now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So this right here, this is, it's, it's a great affront. And we see it in these categories here when it says that their goal is to make a name for ourselves, right? This, this statement is, from the first few pages of the Bible, we have this is the essence of sin. Sin is, uh, it is our rebellion and arrogance in the face of a holy God as we seek to make a name for ourselves. So, so here we step in and we say, I'm going to make my name at the expense of God's name or at the expense of some other human made in God's image. We seek to make a name for ourselves every time that we choose sin. Uh, so let's look at a few examples. That might be Pride, right? Like pride is a sterling example of making a name for ourselves. It's, it's about me, and it's about how I am better than someone or something else, right? My name is higher than their name. Or pride's cousin, right? Self-righteousness. So I have, I have two kids in my house now, and you really get to see self-righteousness play out as, 
as one kid always, if someone's doing something wrong, right, the other one's like, I'm not putting M&Ms in my nose, right? Like, it's, it's this self-righteous, like, I am making a name for me because I'm the best. Um, so making a name for ourselves. It could play out in greed, and greed isn't just about money, right? Greed is the good of me and mine at the expense of you. And that could be, the you could be me personally, it could be my family, it could be my nation, right? It could be my people. Anything is, it's, that could be greed playing out. But also, um, this sin of making a name for ourselves, it can happen in these kind of more hidden ways when we treat our concerns and our preferences like they're higher than the commands of God, right? So if, if I think my name is higher than God's name, then, then my rule book is the rule book that counts. So like in Philippians 4, 6, right, is Paul writes that, that we are to cast all our anxieties upon, upon God because he cares for us. But when I choose to worry, right, when I choose to worry, I'm saying, in essence, no, my plan is better than your plan, God. My plan, better than yours. My name is greater than your name, right? If we look at the sin of adultery, right, is God says, do not commit adultery. Uh, and that's us saying, if, if we go out and do that, we're saying, God's ways are old-fashioned. He doesn't understand the modern world. I know more than him, so my name and my commands are higher than his commands. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself and pray for your enemy and those who persecute you. And we say... Nah, right? Like, like this, is, this is our ways being treated as if they were somehow higher than God's ways rather than vice versa. So we could go on, on and on and on forever, right? Come up with these examples. But in essence, this is the key. In essence, sin is about making a name for yourself. Okay. But also, sin is it's, it's not effective, right? It's just it's not a good strategy. Uh, so sin will never give you what it promises. It's going to bite back. Uh, so check out these people in, in the story of Babel, right? What was their goal? What did they want to do? Uh, if we look at the end of verse 4, they directly say, so that we can make a name for ourselves and, and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But what happens, and the, the very next thing that happens is God comes and scatters them across the face of the whole earth. So they seek not to be scattered, but they end up being scattered. And they do this because they're pursuing the greatness of their own name. Uh, sin will promise you one thing, but it won't give it to you. Or if it does, you won't get it for very long, right? It's, sin is folly. It doesn't lead to its logical conclusion. It doesn't get you where you hoped it would get you. In fact, it's this. It's sin will always give you less, not more freedom than you thought it would. Uh, so so example of, of this freedom, right, is um, over the last year, we've been running through a series of, of fish at my house. So we have this beta fish tank that sits on the, on the kitchen countertop, and it's, it's not been a good run for the fish, um, which we can blame whoever we want to blame for that. But So first we had, we had Mr. Planter. Uh, Mr. Planter didn't make it very long, and then he was on the, on the floating one day. Mr. Planter was replaced by Mr. Flash, like, like the superhero Flash, and Mr. Flash also... Didn't, didn't, actually, Mr. Flash had a good run. Mr. Flash lasted a few months. And then finally was led to uh, Mr. Speed Racer. Yes, they're all very, they're all very gentlemanly. You may have noticed. They'll have a, a proper title. Uh, Mr. Speed Racer, though, he didn't even make it a week. So, so if we think of these fish and their sad existence in my household, um, so maybe, maybe let's, okay, most recently, most, Mr. Speed Racer, he was this beautiful red, that's the name, Speed Racer, because, you know, red race cars are fast. I don't know, this is what happens when you let a six-year-old name the fish, right? Mr. Speed Racer, imagine that he's sitting in his tank, right? And he's saying, ah, oh, 
I want more freedom. I want more freedom than I have right now. And he's, he's swimming around. He's watching us cook dinner. And he's like, I want to go over by the stove. He, he's seeing us sitting down at the table and eating. He's like, I want to, I want to be part of the, the family that eats at the table. He's looking over by like where the couch is. He says, I want to sit on a couch. But the reality is, if we granted his wish, if we gave Mr. Speed Racer his dream that he could get out of that tank and go sit on the couch, his demise would have been met even sooner than it was anyways living in our household, right? Is, is you look and you say, this thing is going to give me freedom. But the reality is, it actually will give you less freedom because fish were designed to breathe through gills underwater, right? And humans, we were designed to live by the commands of our creator. So when we follow those commands, things go better for us. When we depart from them, things go worse, right? And this is not because God is like, like the... the taskmaster who's, who's throwing these things down, but because he loves us and he created us and he wants what's good for us, right? We debatably wanted what was good for our fish and we want to keep them in the water. God wants us to live the way that we can by breathing the, the, the things that he has given us, by living in accordance to the commands of this book, by living in accordance to how he has made us and what that's to look like. So sin, it's not going to get us what we want it to. Um, second we have, though, is there is a great mercy in this verse. So in verses 5 through 7, we see a great mercy take place. Uh, I'll read those. So verse 5. But Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Yahweh said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So this, I've entitled this is a great mercy, which might not add up immediately, but, but stick with me. We'll get there. So a great mercy is the reality is God saw their city better than they did. He knew their situation better than they did, and he knows yours and my situation better than we do, right? God saw their situation, and he knew what would be best for them. He knew the story of, of Cain and Lamech and Adam, and he knew the downward spiral that it would create. He knew that, in fact, this city was going to be a disaster. It was going to be a nightmare with all these people and their issues coming together as one. So knowing that history, in his mercy, he scattered them. In his mercy, he sent them apart. And he did this because he knew what they needed, right? He loves and he protects us. So even in our trials, he's working for us, right? Because of his love, because of that, he is working for our good, he's working for what we need, he's working to protect us and help us out. But further, God saw their mission better than they did. And these people, they, they weren't on the mission that he had for them. So if we look at Genesis 1.28, right? Genesis 1.26, we see humans are created in the image of God, um, created men and women, he created them. But then in 1.28, he gives us a command as humanity. And he asks humanity that we will go and we will, we will fill the earth, right? We will fill the earth, we will multiply, and we will steward the earth. We will take care of the planet and we will fill it with, it's, called, it's been called in theological circles, the, the cultural mandate. So the mission God had for humanity is that we would fill this earth and cultivate and take care of it, right? But here we are in chapter 11, and that's not their plan, right? they have decided they all want to stay planted in one area and not cultivate and steward the earth for God's glory. So what God is doing is he's saying, by scattering you, I'm going to get you back on mission. I'm going to make sure you start filling the earth by sending you to every corner of it. 
as a human species, right? And with, side note, this is just kind of fun, is we see this happen again, actually, in, in Acts, right? So in Acts 1.8, the command is given that, that the disciples are to go to Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, right? But a few chapters later, they're all still hanging out in Jerusalem. And they're there, and they're in Jerusalem, and, and it, it was a good time. They had a good thing going on. Like the early church, they had some good things going on. But that wasn't the command. The command was, once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're supposed to go. Uh, so in Acts chapter 4, we see a persecution is sent upon the church, and all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're forced to flee Jerusalem. They're forced to leave. And within that generation, we have the gospel is being preached in India and in Ethiopia and all over, right? Is God will act to get us back on track with the mission that he has for us and what that looks like as humans. So this is actually a mercy. His scattering is a mercy he has brought us to. But then finally, um, we have this, this, our last couple of verses here, and this is where I kind of want to camp out a little bit, um, is a great gift. So if we look at verses 8 and 9, we see that they're, um, well, no, we'll just wrap it up, see what happened. So, so Yahweh scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole world. From there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So here we have is that human, humanity, right? We've been taken, we've been given new languages, and we've been scattered across the earth. And one thing I want you to note here, if you, if you look at this text, right? Some people have called this the, the curse of Babel. But you will not look, and you shouldn't rather, in none of your translations should you see the word curse there. If you look it up in Hebrew, you should not see the word curse there. Uh, I would argue this is not a curse, that this is actually a gift that's being given, that this scattering was a gift. Because what we see here is this act is, it's the creation of language and culture, right? So in the story of Babel, when you think of it, right, think of Babel is the creation of culture. Um, and now apologies here if this starts to, to feel a little bit like sociology 201 or something, but we have to ask ourselves then, what, what is culture? Uh, so culture is, it's the, the attitudes, the customs, and the beliefs that distinguish one group from another. So culture, it's obvious things like the language we speak, the art we create, the food we eat, what our definition of spicy is, right? These are parts of what it means to have a culture, but it's also less obvious things are part of our culture. Uh, so things like chronology or like our, our relationship with time. So maybe you, you've heard this before, maybe it was in like high school sociology, right? But that in, say, like Germany, in Germany, if you, uh, if you ask someone how late can someone be before they need to apologize, the answer would be something like five minutes, right? Like three to five minutes late, and they don't need to apologize. But in somewhere else, like let's say in the Caribbean, you could be three to four hours late and not need to apologize, right? Like, like culturally, there are different views and relationships with time and what that looks like. And that doesn't make one right or one wrong. It is part of this thing that I'm arguing God has created that is different about us. Um, so it could be that. It could be our definition of noise level. What do we consider too loud or too quiet or too soft? It could be our definition of what reverence to God looks like, right? There's, there's many different subcultural views of what that looks like, right? So I don't know, like, my early years, I grew up in a Presbyterian church where it was like, literally, you weren't supposed to clap, right? Like, even, like, clapping was discouraged. Um, and it wasn't because it's like, uh, well, maybe some people would argue this, but... I'm not saying. It wasn't because, like, Presbyterians hate having fun. It was because, culturally, their view is we show reverence to God. We show that we, we care about the things of God by quietly sitting in his presence so we can focus and think about him, right? Like, 
I show reverence to God when I quietly am experiencing his presence, right? But on the other side, I don't know if, like, if you went to a, if you grew up in, like, a Assemblies of God, like a Pentecostal church, right? It would be a very different idea of what it means to show reverence to God, like, right? You could literally be dancing in the aisle with a ribbon, and that would be an acceptable practice, and, and equally so, because I'm showing that I love God and that I reverence him through letting my body experience worship, Right? And so this is, these are different cultural views. And once again, like, what I'm not trying to get here is like, one of these is so dumb and the other's not. The point is, culture expresses itself in different ways. And, and if, we, if we get there, the argument is that this is a, a good thing. This is a beautiful thing. So what we see here in Genesis is this is the moment where these, these different groups are created, right? So as we're scattered, as we're separated... As people end up in, right, some people end up in China, and some people end up in Norway, and some people end up in Zambia, or what would become all those places, I assume they didn't have those names um, at the time, is as they're scattered, right, generations spread, things develop, and as they develop, suddenly, humanity, we're not all the same, right? Our languages differ, our customs differ, the way we reverence God differs. And these things are gonna, gonna play out. But what's gonna happen is, as we said, in, as is the story of Genesis, God creates a good thing, and then it breaks. And as it breaks down, we have seen the, the breakdown of how we relate to each other as cultures play out, right? So over the centuries, we have culture and people group and ethnicity. Whatever term we might use has been used to divide people. Um, so so we, have, right, we have a history of, of genocide throughout humanity that stems from this. We have many, many wars that have been fought over cultural issues uh, between nation states and this. We have bigotry. And if we're in this country, right, we can't be, we would be remiss if we did not mention the sin of racism, which has come out of culture and how that has played out, right? So today, right, here, here we are, we're in Jacksonville, Florida, a former part of the Confederacy. In 2019, this was, uh, in 2019, we're marking the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans that were brought over to Jamestown, right? So 400 years ago, this year, was the start of slavery in the United States, what many have called America's original sin, right? Um, and, and this is tied to this gift that was given at Babel of culture becoming broken down as culture has been used to subjugate or culture has been used to create hierarchy or culture has been used to destroy the image of God in some so that others can make a name for themselves. We've seen this play out again and again. And in light of all this, you might ask, what are you doing up here arguing that culture's a good thing then? Like, you're saying that all these horrible things that have come as a result of this division, why is culture a good thing? Isn't it actually kind of, kind of a bad thing? It's, it's led to division? But um, I, I would say no to that. And, and I'm not saying no to that just because like, I still want to eat Indian food. Like, I am saying culture is a gift because it uniquely displays the, the image of God in how it plays out. So let's take a look at that. Is, is, um, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. So in, give you a moment to pull that up. Um, so Revelation chapter 7, we're going to see uh, a picture of kind of the end of things, right? So for some context here, the book of Revelation is, it is a vision from the apostle John where he saw an image of what the future would look like, right? And he's seeing specifically in this chapter, we're talking about what heaven will be like, right? So this picture of heaven, depending on what scale of how literally we take all this, you can, no matter where you're all on that spectrum, you can, you can pull out the principles here from what's happening in chapter seven. Um, and, and let's take a look at 
what culture looks like as it's expressed in the new Jerusalem in the forever hereafter. So starting in verse 9, Revelation 7, 9 and 10 reads like this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All right, let me, I'm going I'm to do it again. Maybe if you want, you can picture it in your head or whatever, but I'm going to read, read the whole passage again just for emphasis. After this I looked, and there were before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So if we look at this passage, right, John is describing this, this perfect vision of unity, right, where we even have matching outfits, right? Um, but this perfect picture of unity as humanity has been brought together and we are in worship of Jesus for the salvation that he has brought. But note, right, he goes out of his way to describe them as every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. They don't all suddenly just speak Portuguese, right? They don't all suddenly just kind of have a gray tone of skin. Their, their cultural differences are maintained, right? They're still nation, tribe, tongue, language. They still have these things. We're not going to lose that. We're not going to have our culture erased. Because this is the reality, is unity is great. And unity is the goal. And unity, according to John 17 and this passage, unity is where we are headed for all of eternity. But unity will not come. And it should not come as we pursue it here on the earth. Unity will not come at the cost of erasing our cultural, ethnic, or racial differences. Right? Is, is God was intentional when he created each and every one of us. And he, he meant when, when he did that. So he doesn't want us to, to use that. We're going to be unified, but also speaking many languages. Right? We're going to be unified but not just like all singing a Chris Tomlin song, right? There's going to be some, some Tamala Mans mixed in there. There's going to be some, some Wing Se, who is a, a Chinese gospel singer, right? Is our cultural distinctives will maintain because we glorify God with them, right? So we don't ignore those things. We don't pack them into a box and only take them out for certain occasions. In our full cultural expression, we are glorifying God. There's this reality here is this. It's, it's God is not colorblind. He invented it. Okay? So if anyone ever tells you that God's colorblind, just tell them, nah, that's not, that's not it. No, he's, he's not, right? He invented it. He meant it when he did it. Okay? Um, it's not an accident. It's not a deficit. Uh, you and me and every person you've ever met is fearfully and beautifully and wonderfully made. And that was intentional by our creator who had this idea in Babel that when he created culture that he would use it for his glory. So, okay, if we, if we dive in a little deeper, let's take a look at this, is that every culture on earth, it does, it does two things, okay? So on one side, every culture on earth, it somehow uniquely displays the image of God. Um, and, and in doing that, our diversity glorifies God. So every culture, even, even cultures where Christians do not have the majority, will in some way uniquely show the image of God in a way that maybe was not seen otherwise. But also, every culture will uniquely show the fall in some way, right? So every culture through, through some impact of selfishness or, uh, or pride or arrogance will also uniquely show how the fall has taken place. 
And what's going to happen, though, is that God cares about these cultures. He wants to take those fallen parts. I guess I should be over here for that. Take those fallen parts, and he wants to redeem them, and he wants to take those good parts that show his image, and he wants to highlight them so that we can see them. Um, so, so, for example, let's, okay, let's look at, um, we can take different parts of God's character or different biblical principles, and we can, we can dive into this. So um, let's take this idea of stewardship. So if we took the word stewardship and we read through the book of Proverbs, right, you would find, depending on your translation, you would find stewardship mentioned again and again, this idea of, of what does it mean to be a good steward. But depending on what culture or theological or different things that you've been brought up in, you might have different definitions of what it looks like to be a good steward, right? Um, so I, shocker to you all, um, probably, I grew up in a predominantly white area um, and grew up in a, a white suburban context. So in, in the, the white suburbs, or at least the Midwestern white suburbs, what stewardship means is I am a good steward when I take care of the things that God has given me and make sure they don't get broken, basically, right? So stewardship is God's given us good things, and we will take care of them. So I'm being a good steward when I wax my car. I'm being a good steward when I lock up my back shed to make sure no one steals my lawnmower, things like that, right? Is This is stewardship. And, and to that I would say, like, yes, taking care of the gifts God given us is stewardship, right? But then, 10 years ago, right, I moved to Jacksonville. I moved up the road to Brentwood, right? And in Brentwood, stewardship looks like, stewardship means... I'm going to take the things that God has given me and I'm going to generously share them with anyone who might be in need, right? So in, in my neighborhood, it's not uncommon for if your neighbor gets evicted, you say, oh, come on, you, you, guys, you guys can stay in my living room. Like, yeah, you guys just moved in six months ago. We don't really know you. It's not like you're my family, but you can live in my living room because you need a place to stay and I have a living room. So come on, live with me, right? In, in Brentwood, stewardship looks like maybe I didn't eat lunch that day, but if someone says, hey, can I have part of your sandwich? You pull out a knife and you cut that thing in half, right? Because I have this thing and I can share it with you. And this is a, it's a cultural expression of what it looks like to be a steward that plays out in Brentwood, right? So God looks at these, right? And, and the point isn't to say like, the point is to say that God looks at this and he says, yes. He says like, like, you are, when you take care of my gifts, you are showing my image in a sense. When you share generously, you are showing my image in a sense. And we are to take those good things and we celebrate them, right? We celebrate them, but also we need to critique them when it reaches a point, and we'll get to this in a second, a little bit deeper, but it, if, if our expression of that might start to trend in a negative way, we need to critique that, right? So if my stewardship in a white suburban way becomes hoarding, then that needs to be critiqued because that's no longer showing the image of God, right? Um, so this is what it's going to look like, is one day, all of our diversity is going to join together. And it's not that we're going to be just like melded into this one grayish blob, but that we will highlight our differences and the greatness of God will be all the more on display without the negative impact of sin. So this is exciting because, right, is, so he, here we are, the Ville Church, right? You have the chance to live this out today. You have the chance to be a, a preview of heaven in the way you live and in the way you, you treat your relationships. Um, we have the chance to live out the, the creating of heaven's unity and undoing the scattering that has taken place. So if we get really, really practical, let's practically look at what this might look like to do this. Um, as we seek to be those who will see and discern these things biblically. Um, so step one, this is very practical, right? 
And I'm going to say, one, for a very, very long time, start with your own culture, okay? So if we're going to examine this idea of how has sin affected it and how has the image of God affected it, start with your own culture and take an inventory. Um, so yes, white people, we do have a culture. We're not just normal, like we have a culture. So look at your culture, look at your subculture, look at who you are, and first thing you could, if you, if you, if you want to do the positive first, is look at your culture and say, okay, how might my people group display the image of God uniquely? And when we see those things, right, we should celebrate them. When we see those things, we should say, all right, great, go for it. So uh, when we see those things, yeah, celebrate them and, and play them out. Um, so for example, um, so for example, let's go with um, a few years ago, more than a few years ago, wow, that's a, that was like more than 10 years ago, a decade ago, um, I spent some time in, a, in Turkey, right? So I was in this Middle Eastern country where 99.99% of the population is either Muslim or secular, right? There's it's like, it's almost no Christian population. I think it's under 3,000 Christians in the entire country out of 80 million, right? Um, but in Turkey, I experienced the most welcoming, hospitable environment that I could ever imagine, right? So the, the Turkish people culturally really value taking care of strangers. Like, they, they really like, like oh, uh, oh you're, going to, you're going to take the bus back to your hotel? Here, I will go wait at the bus stop with you. I don't want you to be lonely. Oh, you're, you're thirsty? Come to my apartment. I'm going to give you six water bottles and some tea, right? Just like, there is a culturally, they love taking care of people. And when, they, when this happens, they are displaying God's image, even in the people who don't know Jesus, right? They're displaying a picture of God's image. So when we see those good things, we ought to celebrate them, right? But as we continue down this road, it's where we're practically, right? Starting with yourself, starting with your own people group. You take your inventory, see these good things that are displayed. But the next step, which might be less fun, is you need to look into your own people group and yourself specifically, but also your group, because the collective matters too. You're not just an individual, plain and simple. But look in your group. Remember, I'm going to say it again, just so no one gets the wrong idea. For your own people group, you don't do this for other people, for your own. And you need to examine how the fall might be playing out in your culture or in your people and what that might look like. And when you see that, it is your responsibility, it is your theological, it is your biblical responsibility to speak against that when you see your people playing out in that way. So, once again, we've already established, but again, I'm white, I'm a white person, so I'm going to talk to the white people for a minute about a responsibility they have, is, <laughs> this is what we did, uh, not get a little too prophetic, but white people in the United States of America have a responsibility to speak up and speak out against racism because racism appears to have become increasingly more and more an identifying part of what it means to be a white person in this country. There is a, a, a sentiment that is growing within our culture, even if you don't subscribe to that culture, there is a sentiment growing within our white subculture that accepts racialized and racist ideas. And, and we see it displayed again and again, and we saw it displayed yesterday in El Paso, and we see that, that there's something about whiteness that hates the other. And there's something about whiteness that wants to destroy people that don't look like whiteness, and maybe not destroy them with a gun in a Walmart, but maybe to destroy them in other ways by dehumanizing them, or by speaking about them, or about looking at them a certain way, or having, having images where you dehumanize and do not treat someone like they're made in the image of God. So, this is a responsibility for white people to stand against. Because the people who maybe 
virulently express those things, they're at your Thanksgiving dinner table, or they're in those online forums, or they're playing video games with you, and you have to step up, and you have to be a person who says, there's evil being presented here, and I need to stand against it. I need to speak prophetically against a way that the fall has entered into my sociocultural group, and I'm going to, to pray that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, would give me strength so that I can stand against it, because it's wicked, and it's from the pit of hell, and it is our responsibility, the Caucasians, right? It's our responsibility to stand against those things um, and to, to speak truth and to speak words that dignify and to speak words that let our brothers and sisters who don't share our skin tone know that they are valued and that God made them on purpose and that God is one day going to undo these things, not to erase us and not to make us all look identical, but because he loves us and because our culture is playing out in such a way that it shows a beautiful picture of his image as it plays out. Because when we do that, right, when we, when we look at some things and we say that glorifies God and we give thanks for it, and we look at other things and we prophetically speak against them, what we do is we, we glorify God and we love people. When we do that, we, we love people because people were made in God's image. We're the crown of his creation. He wants us to be taken care of. And when we do that, we, we celebrate Christ, right? We celebrate Jesus um, in doing that. So, sorry, that was a little intense. Um, I didn't even say the president's name, though, so hey. So, uh, when we do that, we, we celebrate Christ. So, as I close, you can, you can fact check me on this, this later, but um, you don't need to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 2 is a very, it's a very famous uh, passage, right? So, Ephesians 2 might be the most famous presentation of the gospel message that, that we can see, right? So verses 1 through 10 are extremely well known, right? So verses 1 through 10 is where we have this discussion of that we are, we are dead in our sins and we are objects of wrath, but that God, right, that God has come through Christ and he has made us alive. And it is, right, famous, right? Verse 8 and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, it is not, by, not on your own, for we are Christ's workmanship, created to do good things in him for others, right? So this is this view of that, that once... God and us, right? We were separated, but that Jesus came and on the cross he made a way that we could be united. And this is right here, this is a, it's a vertical reconciliation that has taken place. But perhaps less well-known, right, is the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. If we keep reading from verse 11 onward, and I remember reading this passage when I was in college, and there's this word picture there that I just thought was so powerful. And it talks about that there was a dividing wall and that Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall that has separated us. And I, and I had this image in my mind, right? So it's like God the Father was over here and humanity was over here and there was this wall between us, but that Jesus came through uh, like a jackhammer or a chisel or something and he blew up that wall and now we and the Father could be together. And that sentiment, that sentiment is true, right? That word picture works if you want to use it, but it's not what Ephesians 2 verse 11 and on is talking about. Ephesians 2, the second half, is talking about a different type of reconciliation. The dividing wall was that the one that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And that there was two different ethnic groups on either side of this wall, but that Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross destroyed that wall and he took it down so that those who call on the name of Jesus, who have been united by him, can live together in unity, right? And, and this we see, this is a horizontal reconciliation. And the language is clear, is that Jesus on the cross did both. He united us back to God the Father, but also he created the way that we could be united to one another 
across, across ethnic barriers, right? It's specifically laid out there. As I said, you can fact check, you can look it up later. But is this horizontal reconciliation of people to people has also been brought about through the work that Jesus has done. So for us, to be a body of Christ, to be the body of Christ, we don't need to gloss over our differences. Like, they're real, and we can talk about them. You, don't, you know, we don't need to just, just hide from them. They're real, and we can talk about them. We don't need to parrot some heresy that God is colorblind. We don't need to say that, because God meant it when he created us. He, he, it wasn't an accident. But instead, what we get to do is we get to celebrate, and we get to live out the reconciling love and justice of our God who created us in our differences and who intends to unite us as a family. Both here and now, we're being united, and for all of eternity, we will be united as a family together. So let me pray for us, and then I believe you're going to do communion. And if there's anyone who's in need of prayer, you can, you can come to the front, and there will be some people there to pray for you. Um, but let me pray, and we will, yeah, we will go. Father, I pray that you would... Um, that you would work in, in our hearts and in our lives, that you would give us eyes to see by your Spirit's power, that we would see um, what it looks like to be crafted more into your image, um, to be created more to look like you so that we can love one another. Give us eyes to see clearly about our own culture, um, how it is beautiful and glorifying to you and how it might be broken. And as we see that, to act with clarity. And as we see that, to act... Um, as peacemakers and as reconcilers and as people who love you and who love one another. Um, I pray that you would, would, in fact, take down that dividing wall of hostility that you have done on the cross and that you would allow us to love each other um, well. So even now as we, we come to this table and we celebrate your work and what you have done, uh, we thank you that you do love us. We thank you that you do care for us. We thank you that you do know what is best for us. And uh, just pray that you would empower us through your spirit, that we could live that out each and every day. We ask this in your name. We ask this by your power. Pray all these things for the sake of your reputation in Jacksonville, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Amen.